This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Environmentalism from Below, How Global People's Movements Are Leading the Fight for Our Planet by Ashley Dawson. In this urgent intervention, scholar-activist Ashley Dawson takes readers inside the popular struggles for environmental liberation in the Global South. These communities, among the most vulnerable to, but also least responsible for, the climate crisis, have long been fighting to protect imperiled worlds. Today, as the world's forests burn and our oceans acidify, grassroots movements are tenaciously defending the environmental commons and forging just and sustainable ways of living on Earth. Find Environmentalism from Below at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Houthi attacks on ships traversing the Red Sea have prompted many people all over the world to ask, who are the Houthis? Why are they taking these actions in solidarity with Gaza against the Israeli genocide, even as it elicits U.S. military reprisals? What, generally speaking, is going on in Yemen? Today, we provide a dig-length answer to those questions and more. My guest is the very longtime Yemen scholar Helen Lackner. We discuss the Houthis, their ideology, history, and politics, their solidarity with Palestine, where they fit into Yemen's long civil war, and then we go way, way back to the first half of the 19th century and discuss the history of British colonial control of Aden in the south, the Zaidi imamate in the north, the Republican revolt against that northern imamate, and the regionalized civil war that then followed the creation of the Yemen Arab Republic, the end of British colonialism in South Yemen, and the establishment of the Marxist-Leninist People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, all the way through the unification of the country in 1990 and so much more. Before we get this podcast started, we get messages every day telling us that The Dig is an essential political education project. We are glad that you appreciate what we're doing because we very much appreciate that so many of you are listening. Please know, though, that what makes this political education project possible is listeners like you contributing at patreon.com slash the dig. We do not raise money like many podcasts do by paywalling episodes. We would make a lot more money if we did that. We don't do that precisely because this is fundamentally more a political project than a media property. We want everyone possible to listen, regardless of your ability or, frankly, your willingness to pay. This works only because those of you who are willing and able to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have, depending on how much you contribute and where you live, books, tote bags, and mugs to mail you. And all contributors, every single contributor, receives our excellent newsletter by Ben Maybe in your email inbox. Contribute now if you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Helen Lackner, the author of many books, including Yemen in Crisis, Devastating Conflict, Fragile Hope, and Yemen, 
poverty, and conflict. She is an associate at the Transnational Institute, worked in rural development, and lived in the three Yemeni states for 15 years over the past 51 years. Helen Lackner, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mainstream reports these days, they often portray the Houthis as as mere Iranian proxies, and and their attacks on ships passing through the Red Sea are framed, I think, rather cynically, as, as either a favor to Iran or as a means to shore up an authoritarian domestic order. For, for the Houthis' part, of course, they say they're motivated by solidarity with the Palestinian people and and that their attacks are geared to pressure Israel to stop its genocide in Gaza. What, what should we make of the Houthis' attacks? Well, thank you for asking this. And it's a bit of a, you've actually asked three questions in one, so it's a bit difficult. <laughs> uh, but I'll take the last bit, which is basically the Houthis are genuinely committed to helping Palestine. If you are looking at the Houthi ideology, which is very limited and very simple, its main foreign policy element is support for Palestine and being anti-Israeli and anti-American. So these actions on their part are absolutely fit in perfectly with their own beliefs and ideologies, and they're doing this essentially through their commitment for this cause. And I want to pick up another element of what you were saying, which is this Iranian proxy bit. I find it particularly frustrating and irritating because it it kind of, one, it assumes that the Houthis take their orders from Tehran, which is absolutely not the case. And maybe we can talk later about the, their relationship with Iran. But either way, it is not, you know, it just is not, they are not proxies. They have their own mind. And as I just explained, this I, the support for Palestinians is a fundamental element of their ideology. And the second element of that, uh, that proxy business is that it implies that agencies such as the Houthis, or indeed all the others who are being accused of being Iranian proxies, have no agency of their own and have no ideas of their own. It's an incredibly arrogant and patronizing position, which I find in- incredibly irritating. So I think that's a, you know, these are two really important elements which are really worth getting out of the way before we move on to other things. Most definitely. I wanted to get those out of the way before we get into actual analysis, get the the, the, the dominant and conventional mystifications taken care of. <laughs> um, the, the, the Houthis are garnering a lot of sympathy and attention across the Arab and Muslim world and also really across the pro-Palestine left everywhere because, as you write, quote, ordinary people are noticing that the Houthi movement is the only one taking action against Israel. Obviously, the Houthis haven't stopped Israel's genocide or even slowed it, but they have wreaked serious havoc on the global shipping industry, the the backbone of the global economy, which has prompted this recent series of U.S.-led military responses. And, and they've done all this, the Houthis have done all this notably in the context of an overwhelmingly mute response from the Arab League, including countries like Egypt that have been directly economically affected. How consequential is the Houthis' partial blockade, both both economically and geopolitically? 
I think economically it has some impact and not particularly against Israel. So it has cut down shipping to Eilat and it's obviously discouraging a number of ships from going to Israeli ports. So, But overall, you know, the impact is somewhat significant throughout the region and beyond that through the world. And But it's also important not to overemphasize this. You know, some ships are diverting around the, Horn, the Cape of Good Hope a lot of them are still going through. I don't have the latest figures in my head. Uh, and there's also the element that, uh, you know, there are people who've been suggesting that a lot of ships are diverting because they've been told or encouraged by the U.S. to do so. And not because the Houthis have been very, very explicit. They have said very clearly the, the ships that they object to or that they will target are any ship that has any connection with Israel. So whether that's a connection of delivering goods, picking up goods, transit, ownership, whatever, those are ships that they are targeting. They are not targeting others. They've also explicitly announced that any other ship, all they need to do is respond to Houthis calls on whatever media they communicate with and say that they have no Israeli connection and they will then not be attacked. So I think, you know, we have to really oh, check this, look at what is actually happening. And there's also a lot, I mean, I have this vision of the, the Red Sea sort of becoming a, just a traffic jam of any number of ships all over the place between the military ones and the civilian ones and others. So it's also, I mean, they have apparently on occasion targeted ships that did not have, or they've either hit or been close to hit or whatever, ships that did not have Israeli connections. Whether those were actually their targets or they were targeting another one nearby that did have, I don't know. But I tend to believe when the Houthis threaten something, they mean it. And at the same time, when the Houthis generally make agreements, they tend not to mean it. So one has to have a, you know, a clear uh, differential between the different circumstances that you get when dealing with the Houthis. But I'd also like to pick up something I missed out on earlier, which is you were talking about their support. And, uh, you know, the, it has, I mean, it's almost funny at times because certainly within Yemen, where Houthis and within the area that they control, i.e. two-thirds of the population of the country, they are not popular and they are generally, you know, considerably disliked because the, their, their rule is not what you'd call democratic or friendly or, you know, has showing any respect for basic human rights. The Yemeni population, alongside the population in most Arab countries and many others, are you know, pro-Palestinian, and therefore the what they are doing in the Red Sea has enormously increased their popularity in the area that they rule throughout the rest of Yemen. I mean, all you have to do is look at the last Fridays and presumably today's demos in Sanaa or in favor of Palestine, and you will see incredibly large numbers of people attending them. And, you know, slightly more amusingly is we now have people in the West who are talking about the Houthis as if they're great, great people or dreadful people, depending on who they are. And the, I, I mean, I live in the UK and, you know, the Houthis have been the number one item on the local news bulletin. I mean, this is reaching, <laughs> you know, 60 million or 65 million or basically 95 percent of the population in this country who had no idea who the Houthis were 
two weeks ago and probably still don't really understand who they are. And, you know, suddenly, and you go to a pro-Palestine demonstration and people again are praising them and saying how wonderful they are. I mean, they are not wonderful. What they're doing with respect to the Red Sea and Palestine is, you know, definitely a good thing, in my view. But the rest of their activities are by no means um, things that anybody on the left certainly should support. The recent U.S.-led attacks on Houthi targets have been made in the name of of securing the free flow of international commerce, all, all of course, while the U.S. continues to energetically fund and supply Israel's genocide with, with apparently no red lines at all. And the, the Houthis, meanwhile, they seem to really relish this American intervention. And, and the U.S. attacks, they've only spurred more defiant statements from Houthi leaders and more attacks on passing ships. And there was, there was one widely circulated video recently after one of the American bombardments with crowds in the capital chanting, we don't care, we don't care, make it a big world war. How do you analyze the U.S. decision to strike Houthi assets? Because Biden was recently asked, I'm not sure if you saw this video, he was recently asked if the airstrikes in Yemen were working and he responded, and this was sort of exemplary of of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Are the airstrikes in Yemen working? Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. So does, (laughs) does the U.S. actually believe that these strikes will produce a desired outcome, i.e. stopping Houthi attacks on ships? Or is it more a quixotic effort on the U.S.'s part as the global hegemon to demonstrate that the Houthis can't take these actions with impunity, even as the failure to stop the attacks only highlights? I think there's a number of aspects that need to be noted. Number one, the U.S., you know, the Houthis have been lobbying things right, left and center in the Red Sea since early or mid-November. So we're now two months later. It's taken two months for the U.S. to take any action. So the first question is, why did they not do anything before? And, you know, the establishment of this Prosperity Guardian operation was, I, I describe it as a farce, because it did nothing over and above what the previous one called whatever, something Task Force 153, which was established in in April 2022, has done. It's done nothing. I mean, if you look at the US statements, the current attacks are explicitly stated to not be connected with Prosperity Guardian. The main European states have refused to participate in Prosperity Guardian. You know, I've, I've actually no idea whether Prosperity Guardian has done anything. And there's no evidence that I've seen that it has done anything. There might be some evidence that I haven't seen, but, uh, you know, as I've just said, I haven't come across anything and I've followed things fairly closely. So I think the, the reason the Americans delayed, and which is similar to the reasons why the Saudis are responding with such modesty, let's put it, to the to Houthi actions, is that both the Americans and the Saudis were hoping to fight, to have the Yemeni peace deal achieved. You know, so they were still hoping that this was going to happen, and there were rumors that it would happen, you know, in the first few days of this year. And so they were hoping that they would be able to achieve this before the situation deteriorated. Clearly, they haven't. The situation has now deteriorated. As you just pointed out, and the quote you mentioned I've also seen, I I don't understand. I mean, they're doing this because they feel they have to do something. 
I think they claim that in the long run it will prevent the Houthis. I mean, assuming that they were able to destroy every single Houthi drone missile and every other kind of projectile the Houthis might have, then presumably that would put an end to the Houthi actions in the Red Sea. But I don't see that this is likely to happen. I have no idea of the figures of anything and or even the different types of items that they have. I'm not at all a military inclined person. Uh, but it's very clear to me that the Houthis are definitely not going to stop unless they have no alternative. And if you look at the history of US intervention in, in the region or even beyond the region in the last few decades, one is led to seriously wonder on what criteria and on what grounds the US is doing what it is doing, simply because if you look at the record, I mean, Afghanistan is the most obvious and, and stunning case, you know, of 20 years of intervention and 20 years of killing people and 20 years of bombing and 20 years of training Afghans, you know, in military affairs and presumably providing, yes, and definitely providing them with weapons. And it's those weapons that the Taliban were pointing at them, you know, in August 2021 when they finally left. And so you have a history of, you know, these interventions having exactly the opposite effect of the effect that is stated. Is, there is no reason to believe that that attacking the Houthis will be any different. So it, it is it is somewhat puzzling, and I'm no you know maybe people who are more expert on U.S. policy are in a better position than I am to to explain this. But I think when you're looking at the Houthis and you're talking about them calling for being happy about the war and the expansion of the war, you know, the Houthi fundamental slogan has three negative items, we are, which are death to America, death to Israel, and curse on the Jews. So, I mean, being anti-American comes even before being anti-Israeli. So having the Americans attack them, you know, ideologically, is a highly desirable situation from their point of view. It also has the impact, you know, helping them keep together and retaining support or gaining more support from the Yemeni population. You know, Yemenis are extremely pro-Palestinian, and they also do not like to be attacked or invaded by any foreigners of any description. You know, the Houthis kept together the people under their control for the last nine years, largely in, a, in response to the, what was the Saudi attack and what they perceived as a Saudi attack and what they, you know, presented as a Saudi attack, i.e. the foreigners are attacking us, you know, we must defend ourselves. And unlike the US and uh, Israel who claim to be self-defense while they're attacking others, this is actually, they have every right to talk about self-defense. I mean, the missiles, the US missiles aren't attacking the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, they're attacking Yemeni territory. <laughs> which is definitely part of, you know, where where they live. So, I mean, that that fits into a much more reasonable definition of self-defense than the Americans saying they're in self-defense when they're attacking a place that's whatever number of thousands of miles away from the U.S. I should ask you a very basic question that I neglected to ask you. Who are the Houthis? The Houthis are, are varyingly referred to as a tribal group, a religious sect, and a political movement who are they and what is their ideology and what sort of government have they implemented over the areas that, that they control? 
Okay, the Houthis are not a tribe. The Houthis are a movement that is named after its leading family, who are called Houthi. They come from the far north of Yemen, and they are Zaydis. Now, if you look at Yemen's religious situation, you have two main Islamic groups within Yemen. You have the Zaydis, who are a form of Shia, which is different from the Iranian 12er Shia, on the one hand, and they control basically most of the northern highlands. And if you look at the map and you have a territory of what the Houthis control, they control that area, plus, I'd say, a sort of band around it. So they control more than just the Zaydi area. And the other religious group are Shafiris, who are a form of Sunnism. And they control, they live in the rest of the country. And there's a few tiny Ismail, groups of Ismailis, but I don't think we need to go into that. And the important element of the Zaydis and the Shafiris is that religiously and in terms of daily life, there's been there's very little theological differences between them. And for many, many centuries, they lived side by side without any problems. But until the revolution in Sana'a in 1962, the regime that ruled Sana'a and surrounding areas was a Mutawakilite kingdom or imamate, which was basically a Zaydi uh, movement. And the main ideological characteristics of the Houthis, other than the two elements of foreign policy I just mentioned, i.e. anti-Americans and anti-Israel, their main element of internal policy is their belief that the descendants of the Prophet have an innate right to rule, and not only just right, but a duty to rule uh, the country and hopefully beyond. And those people in Yemen are normally known as Sada in the plural and Sayyid in the singular. And they are the same people that in other areas are known as either Ashraf or Hashemites. So it's a, and the belief that, you know, this social group should be ruling the country. And so that's really the main ideological element. Uh, the implementation of this in the area they, they rule, which is the kind of governance that they run, does not have to be the way the Houthis are ruling. But the Houthis are ruling in an extremely autocratic and authoritarian system. They give no space for freedom of expression. They are particularly oppressive of women, as are most fundamentalist movements of any religion, to my knowledge. And they basically do not accept any form of dissent. Anything that looks like dissent is very severely repressed. So although, you know, we may be quite pleased at what they're doing about Palestine, that doesn't mean that they are in any way a progressive movement. Let's step back and discuss how the Houthis came, how they came to exercise this sort of state-like power in the first place. Let's jump all the way back to 2011, when these Yemeni uprisings exploded as part of the broader so-called Arab Spring. What drove this mass uprising against Ali Abdullah Saleh, the, the longtime president of Yemen and, and before 1990 of North Yemen as well? What drove it and what did that uprising look like? Well, I think talking about the uprising is one element. Talking about the, how the Houthis arrived is a separate element because the Houthis, you know, were already active and had a whole series, well, they had a series of six separate wars 
fighting the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime between 2004 and 2010. So if you're looking at the origins of the Houthi movement, it comes back to the 1990s when it emerged as a sort of, as a, as a basically Zaydi revivalist movement, which was basically argue of not fighting, but struggling against the rise of more fundamentalist Sunni movements, you know, of Salafis, which also were operating in the same part, in their own homeland, in the area around Saada. And this is Saada, the name of the city, not Saada, the description of, of descendants of the prophets, but the city in the far north of, of Yemen. And, you know, they, they, they had this disagreement they had with the Saleh regime and this competition that existed between the Zaydi revivalists and the Salafi development movements, mostly in the 1990s, you know, eventually led to this series of armed struggles or of six, that officially described as six wars between 2004 and 2010, during which, the, or in the process of which, the Houthis became stronger and stronger, so that by the time the last ceasefire was agreed in 2010, you know, they had their military capacity had significantly improved from what it had been at the beginning. And it's important to note that even in those days, when Ali Abdullah Saleh was trying to persuade the Americans that they should act against the Houthis on the grounds that the Houthis were so close to the Iranians and the threat, the Americans completely ignored this and everybody agreed that the, the Houthis were not an Iranian, connected with the Iranians at that time. So I think that's, you know, that's one element which is very different from the issue of the 2011 uprisings. Coming to the 2011 uprisings, as you pointed out, Ali Abdullah Saleh had been in power in what was first the Yemen Arab Republic from 1978 onwards and into into the of the whole of Yemen of the Republic of Yemen founded in 1990 and so he had basically been very much an a largely autocratic ruler if one's going to have discussions about democracy we can go into some details a bit later but basically Ali Abdullah Saleh had ruled primarily to the benefit of himself and his close associates and his supporters and therefore extracted what little surplus value you could say there was in Yemen for the benefit of this small minority of group of people. And so you had building up from the, the mid-1990s, but particularly in the first decade of this century, an increasing level of frustration and anger amongst the vast majority of the population of the country, uh, who were basically being impoverished, whose incomes had dropped dramatically, who had no, no longer had many of the options of migration that they'd previously had in earlier, earlier decades. And when they could migrate, the income and the revenue from the migration was much less and therefore much less able. Uh, much of the development investments were partly diverted, but by no means insufficient to improve living conditions, which were generally deteriorating. So you had a rise of popular discontent throughout that decade. And this intensified, you know, towards the end of that decade. And then there was an issue of the postponement of elections that were supposed to happen initially in 2009, if I remember rightly. 
and um, eventually it blew up into this explosion in 2011. There's frequent assumptions that the movement in Yemen came as a result of what was happening in Egypt and Tunisia, which is simply incorrect. You know, the, the movement had actually, in terms of fairly large-scale opposition demonstrations, had been going on for quite a few months throughout 2010, and possibly even earlier. But the impact of Egypt uh, and Tunisia was really to intensify and accelerate the movement, and very much to give people the feeling and the hope that they could actually win. And I think that that was a very big element. You know, previously people thought, well, yes, we demonstrate, we demonstrate, we demonstrate, but it doesn't really, you know, do anything. And people also, if you look by 2011, had really given up on the hopes of changing or improving things through elections because the elections, although they didn't produce the sort of farcical results you found in Tunisia or elsewhere, you know, certainly always ensured that Ali Abdullah Saleh and his party won. So you had a real opposition and you had a, a basically a mass movement that really emerged in 2011, which was very important, I think, and, you know, will probably retain some traces that will reemerge in the future. Because in my view, the one of the more important elements of that was that we, we didn't just have mass sit-ins or live-ins, or I'm never quite sure what to call them, in Sana'a. But these happened in every single capital of every governorate. Now, that means that includes real cities like Aden or Taiz or Hodeida, but it includes also a number of very small places, you know, which I would personally call it best towns and just one step up from, you know, large villages. So, you know, this and, and the importance of these is not just that they happened everywhere. The real importance of these is that they were opportunities for people of all different social sectors and social origins to talk to each other and to discover that they had a lot in common. You know, in a society where people had previously mostly talked to people around them of the same tribe or the same social group or the same village, you know, discovering that people from totally different parts of the country you know, had the same problems and that they shared a lot of things that they wanted to talk about. So that I think that was one of the very important elements about 2011 and one of the big hopes, I think, from it. I think the, the reason it did not achieve very much, well, the reasons it did not achieve very much, are first that the movement itself lacked cohesion and lacked any clear objective, clear objectives beyond you know, get rid of Ali Abdallah, which, you know, is a negative ob uh, objective rather than a positive one of what we want instead. And the alternative was, you know, we want a national economy. Well, that's not really a very, you know, detailed economic program. And so that's one of the reasons I think it did not achieve what it hoped for. The two other reasons are basically that the regime powers, which had had rivalries within them, split and so ended up in military confrontations between them. And the third one, of course, was the intervention of the international community, which was intended to bring about a transition to, I'm not quite sure what, I think it was supposed to be a transition to a democratic Yemen. I can't remember if it even stated what it was supposed to be a, to be a transition to. And that eventually forced Ali Abdullah Saleh to allow 
to resign the presidency because if you look at the transition period, which officially was 2012 to 2014, you know, he was still heading his party, which was the most powerful party in the country, and therefore retained considerable influence. And again, that also had an impact on the failure of the transition. So at this point, with the the failure of the transition, the failure of the the so-called National Dialogue Conference under interim president Abdrabu Mansur Hadi, how did the, the breakdown of that process and the failure of the uprising, how did that spiral into this decade-long civil war? And specifically, for starters, how did that lead to the Houthis marching south and taking Sana'a? Well, 2011 led to this agreement, which was known as the GCC Agreement in November 2011, and which created the transitional period, as you said, under Abdurabo Hadi. This transition government had a number of tasks. One of it was to have a government of national unity, which meant that half the government was from Ali Abdallah Saleh's party, even though he wasn't there. And the other half was officially composed of the main opposition parties, which include the major one, which is the Islamist uh, Islah party, uh, what was left of the Yemeni Socialist Party, the Nasserists, the Ba'athists, and indeed what was known as the New Forces, which was women, new youth, and civil society. So they shared one half of the ministerial posts, and Ali Abdallah Saleh's General People's Congress had the other half. So this was really pretty much a recipe for failure. And another element, and, and this government at the time, I think now it's been overtaken, but at the time it was widely known by Yemenis as the most corrupt government they'd ever had. One of Another element of the transition was this National Dialogue Conference, which took place between 2013 and 2014 for 11 months, instead of the six months that it was supposed to deal. And that brought together you know, all these forces that I've just mentioned, and was a, was quite an open discussion, and it it also led to recommendations, which were known as outcomes for some reason, which were supposed to be used to, for the establishment of a new constitution. And then there was a constitutional committee, which was set up in early 2014, which presented its results on in a year later, in early 2015. Now, in the course of the National Dialogue Conference and with this government, while all these things were going on, the general situation in the country was continuing to deteriorate in terms of economic conditions and living conditions and social services, etc., etc. Another element is that, as we didn't mention before, the Houthis had been active members of the uprising in 2011. And once that kind of mellowed down or reduced because there were still tents living and people living in them two years later, but far fewer. You know, what they concentrated on while all this was going while all this was going on, because they were not part of this government, they consolidated their power in their area, in in basically the far north of the country. They expanded their control gradually around in the neighboring governorates. I won't go into the names or all that. And so they strengthened their position. And then as soon as the transition started, they found themselves, one of the main elements of the transition and main sort of beliefs that came through the transition 
was that Yemen would become a federal state. And so one of the big debates in the National Dialogue Conference was how, what was the federation going to be, how many regions, etc., etc., etc. I mean, in the period I spent in the NDC, I saw, you know, in many different maps and suggestions, etc. But the main point from, from the long-term point of view is that there were two groups who really opposed this um, federation. Ali Abdullah Saleh was uh, one of them and his people, so basically they wanted to retain centralization. And the Houthis were the other. Well, the Houthis weren't necessarily against federalism, but once the proposed six regions were announced, they immediately denounced them because they completely isolated them and did not give them any of the things that they wanted, particularly one of them being access to the sea, on the, to the Red Sea on the west, and the other one being access to the oil fields in the east. So they really immediately, uh, this, but they were already had been working quietly in alliance with Ali Abdullah Saleh. So what happened during 2014, when officially the transition was supposed to end, but you know somebody somewhere in the UN or somewhere decided that Hadi's time was going to be extended, I heard many talks that it was being extended for a year. I never saw anything that confirmed the duration of the extension of his period as president. But in tw during 2014, the situation basically sort of became much more acute as the Houthis gradually moved southwards from the far north and basically got closer and closer to Sana, where their alliance with Ali Abdullah Saleh was stronger. And um, the, between them, they, you know, they basically, by the summer of 2014, took over the country. I mean, sorry, took over Sana'a, which is the capital, and all the surrounding areas. Uh, then there were three months of negotiations and discussions, which eventually led to, in 2015, the departure of Hadi, uh, of actually the escape of Hadi, because at that point he was under house arrest, and his departure for Aden, and the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh's forces basically heading south and basically threatening to attack and take over Aden. So you had a battle in Aden for about three months in 2015, which is when the you know the Emiratis and, and other forces started being directly involved in the fighting. So why and how did the war become internationalized in, in 2015 with Saudi Arabia and the UAE entering with critical support from the United States? What, what motivated these neighboring monarchies to fight the Houthis? Their, their entrance came at the request of, of Hadi, but, but what was their motive? Well, basically, Hadi, as he was on his way out, because he felt, you know, there have been attempts to bomb his palace in Aden, he promptly asked the Saudis to help them. Now, if we go back to what was the agreement for the transition, it was known as the GCC agreement, and it was largely sponsored primarily by the Saudis and the Emiratis. They had reasons to want, I mean, they were, the GCC agreement took the name the GCC because they wanted it, because the, the UN was involved, of, uh, there, were, there was a group of ambassadors who were involved and who were basically forming all this, which included, you know, Brits, Americans, French and various other European and other nationalities. So I think if you want to look at the reason the Saudis were involved, you have to remember that the Saudis have been involved in Yemen 
since the creation of the Saudi state. And the first war that happened between uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen was in 1934. So you have a serious, um, you know, long-term involvement. The Saudis, for reasons which I still find somewhat obscure, always seem to think that see Yemen as a potential threat. Now, there's no doubt that population-wise, you know, the populations of the two countries are pretty much similar. And with a big difference, of course, that the Yemeni population is whatever, 99% Yemeni, whereas the Saudi population is about 60 to 70% Saudi. So there's a lot of foreigners involved. And of course, the, you know, the Yemenis are known to be, you know, serious fighters. So th there is that element, but other elements would suggest, you know, that there's good reasons for them to be getting on. I mean, you always have large numbers of Yemenis working in Saudi, even, even now and even during the war. And, you know, the, the Yemeni state uh, from the, well, from basically 1970 onwards, so the North Yemeni state from 1970 onwards, and the whole of Yemen after unification is enormously dependent on financial support from Saudi Arabia. And of course, the Houthis, you know, had been in a way threatening Saudi Arabia to some extent. So, request for from Houthi from sorry from Hadi to intervene in you know seemed welcome there's also you know there's two other elements which are particularly relevant to to Saudi intervention which is you have to remember that in January 15 the king Abdullah died and was replaced by king Salman who promptly started promoting his own direct descendants and in particular Mohammed bin Salman known as MBS who was immediately appointed Minister of Defense. And I think, you know, MBS really imagined at that time, I mean, it seems laughable today, but I, I think it's it's widely known at that time. He thought, you know, oh, well, that's easy. You know, we'll, um, we'll sort this lot out in a couple of weeks or maybe a few more weeks. <laughs> you know, there's this bunch of wild tribesmen sitting in the mountains with their guns and, you know, and um, I mean, with their guns, with their small, small arms. And here we are, we've got, you know, U.S. training, U.S. weapons of most advanced all kinds of weapons of all varieties. You know, we've got the Brits, the French, and everybody else supporting us. I mean, this is just going to be a walkover. And of course, he got the shock of his life because that's not what it was. So, you know, initially, and, and the Saudis right from the beginning were completely unwilling to put any people fighting uh, on, you know, in the in country. They basically relied on air for, uh, uh, sort of airstrikes. The Emiratis at that time, you know, were very close to the Saudis and the relationship between MBS and, and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, who was then crown prince of the Emirates and is now the Emir, you know, was a close relationship, which was widely described as mentor-mentee. And, you know, they, they operated very much together, which is no longer the case now, uh, almost a decade later. So you have a situation where they really thought it was going to be a walkover. And, you know, as things deteriorated and as things extended, that, you know, gradually changed. So that's how really how the Saudis and the Emiratis got primarily involved. It's worth mentioning in passing, since we have some time, that, you know, officially it was a, a coalition of nine states. I mean, there's various other countries who were officially involved. The Egyptians were officially involved, but the Egyptians refused for, firmly to put any 
people into Yemen. I mean, they remembered their period between 62 and 70 when they had something up to 70,000 Egyptians in Yemen. And, um, you know, they basically got nowhere fast and a lot of them died. So they were not, you know, they, they had no enthusiasm for that. And the Pakistanis were also supposed to be part of it. And they were very crafty. I mean, they just said, we have to go to our parliament to ask for permission. And the parliament said no. So that was that. Qatar was surprisingly part of the coalition. I say surprisingly just because they've had so many other conflicts with their Gulf monarchy neighbors over the years. Well, Qatar was part of the coalition at that time. They were getting on fine. Uh, I mean, the the rivalry between Qatar and Saudi and the Emirates, again, is something one can go into separately. But at that time, basically all the GCC states were part of the coalition, except for Oman. Oman refused to participate, but all all five GCC states. So it was was a a GCC thing, except for, for Oman. Oman did not participate. I mean, Kuwait was officially there. Bahrain was officially there. Qatar is, I mean, there's no reason why Qatar shouldn't have been there in 2015. It's only later on when things deteriorated seriously between them and primarily the UAE, where the relationship remains quite tense and probably is unlikely to change for a while. And and today, Bahrain is the only uh, GCC state, I believe, that is participating in reprisals against the Houthis, or at least Prosperity Guardian. Yeah, it's part of the Prosperity Guardian, not in reprisals against the Houthis. I mean, the, you know, the Prosperity Guardian, as I was just writing for, for Jacobin, actually, is a farce. I mean, it's done absolutely nothing. You know, even if you look at the strikes, it, it says, it. you know, the US, I forget if it's the Pentagon or the State Department, one of them has said explicitly that, you know, these strikes have nothing to do with Prosperity Guardian. <laughs> Yet Yemen's war quickly became incredibly complex, including the separate but related campaign that the U.S. waged directly against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, all, again, while the U.S. was providing this material support to the Saudi-UAE intervention. How should we assess the U.S. role, both in terms of, of their campaign against AQAP and also, again, its lead role in this larger coalition of Western powers backing that broader Saudi-UAE war? Well, I think you have to go back to, again, to before before the 2015. You know, the, the U.S. involvement in Yemen since the 90s has been primarily counterterrorism. So they've been particularly concerned with al-Qaeda. I think that's their main, that's been their main concern. And, you know, although nothing that much happened until 98 when there were the attacks in, in Kenya and Tanzania, you know, AKAP, I mean, sorry, Al-Qaeda was, uh, you know, was rising and was an important force in the peninsula particularly and, and to some extent in Yemen. It's been far more of a problem for the Yemenis than for the Americans. But the rationale for most American presence or so U.S. presence in Yemen is really much is based on the counterterrorism. So it's not so much that the U.S. has got any significant fundamental interest in Yemen. It basically has a much fundamental interest in supposedly ending terrorism. And so, you know, that that explains why they, they were very active and they, you know, a few Americans at different points were kidnapped 
And uh, I think, yeah, I forget the details, but some of those who were killed were actually killed in attempts to to rescue them. So that that's the that's the main interest for the Americans. I mean, there's no fundamental economic interest. And I mean, I, until recently, well, even now, obviously, access to the Red Sea and is a you know it is a strategic uh, position, and therefore, you know, U.S. interest in controlling strategic positions is is worldwide. And they, for example, moved in and took, you know, took up part of the French base in Djibouti many, many moons back. I can't remember what year that happened, but it's been going on for a long time. So I think that's really the main uh, interest at, at that stage. How big or consequential was AQAP? Tariq, Tariq Ali suggested after a visit to Yemen, he said that government ministers suggested that Americans had inflated the threat, saying that and these ministers said, I think, that it was at most three or 400 isolated fighters, that it was more a pretext for American intervention than a genuine mass or military phenomena. What What's your assessment? Yeah, I, I think to a large extent I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, what one used to say in the 2000s and even earlier is, you know, when people talk about uh, Al-Qaeda, who do, what do they mean? Because every single faction had its branch of Al-Qaeda. So you had Ali Abdullah Saleh's Al-Qaeda, you had Islas Al-Qaeda, you had different people. And when people came to me and said, you know, Al-Qaeda has done this, that or the other, my first question was, who's Al-Qaeda and which Al-Qaeda? So my view is that I, I think that's quite true, that there was not, uh, you know, that Al-Qaeda was much less of a threat than it was presented as particularly internationally, I mean, the main people who were suffering from Al-Qaeda, you know, would have been the Yemenis far more than, than any international attempts. And I think it was it was exaggerated, uh, mainly because I think the Americans, you know, have tried to exaggerate their threat and terrorist threat, you know, systematically throughout. I mean, I don't think that's exclusive to Yemen. So I think that that is... A, a, you know, more an element. And I don't, you know, I don't think they are, they, they are a threat to some Yemenis in some parts of Yemen. But certainly the, the few international incidents have been dealt with. And again, if you look at it, you know, it expanded after Al-Qaeda moved, well, mo- most of its forces or its people moved from Saudi to Yemen. So I think, you know, it's not, it's a mistake to assume that, um, Al-Qaeda is not a fundamental feature of Yemeni life. There's, what I used to say when people asked is that, you know, when you ask a, an average Yemeni what his problems and priorities are, you know, Al-Qaeda would probably be listed somewhere under number 15 to 20. You know, there's plenty of other more important issues that he or she has to deal with. What role did Iranian support play in, in underwriting the Houthis' political and military power through, throughout the civil war? If you look at the early stages of the Houthis, they had no relationship at all with Iran, or very little, sorry, that's not quite correct. They had a minimum, an ideological relationship. Some members of the Houthi family went to study Islam in Iran, and they had, you know, this ideological connection. But when it came to the fighting, there were certainly during the six wars against Ali Abdullah, you know, the Iranians just didn't feature. The relationship developed and expanded after 2015 or from 2015 onwards, and it's expanded, you know, throughout that period. So it's both a a political alliance, 
and also an ideological change. The Houthis trying very much to differentiate themselves from traditional Zaydism, so in terms of their influence on the population. So they've imported a number of religious occasions from the from the who from the Twelvers, from the Iranian Twelvers, and they've introduced various. Uh, religious events that were basically not part of Zaydism in the past. Uh, so that's the ideological influence. And politically, you know, clearly they are closer to the Iranian regime in terms of the, this opposition to um, to the US and to Israel. And m- the military connection has certainly increased and is increasing, I would say, in the last three or four years. Maybe, no, probably, probably from... I mean, I, I, dates are a bit difficult at this stage, but I'd say from 17 onwards, you know, the Iranian input in terms of give, providing the Houthis with uh, some, basically with technical knowledge to improve their weaponry. I mean, the, the Houthis have learned very much. Most of their original missiles and such like were things that they inherited from the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime. But they've also, you know, the, the this has given them, the Iranians are providing, you know, both information and I think, you know, bits and pieces that are highly sophisticated to put in these different weapons. As I said earlier, I'm really not a military expert, I, you know. I can tell the difference between a missile and the and the Kalashnikov. That's about my lot, <laughs> you know. So, so I think, you know, one has to say that you know, although they are politically independent, and they they are very close allies at this point in history. After almost a decade of terrible warfare, how how did a ceasefire finally come about when it did? And and will this at some point lead to an actual peace treaty with Saudi Arabia being signed? Okay, well, first, it's not a ceasefire, it's a truce. And I think the UN always insists on the difference. And the truce was agreed, you know, by it was, it started and it lasted from April to October 2022. So what it meant is that the fighting reduced very, very considerably. Uh, Since the truce ended in October 2022 up to now, there's been very, very limited military activity on all the usual fronts within Yemen, and it has been almost exclusively between the Yemeni sides, though on the immediate border to Saudi Arabia, there have been a few strikes across the border from Yemen, and recently, in the last few months, the, the Houthis managed to kill a few Bahrainis who were fighting there. So basically... The the truce, which, as I said, started in April 2022, has reduced the fighting very, very considerably. Mainly what there hasn't been at all until this last week has been any airstrikes on Yemen, uh, by uh, any airstrikes on Yemen full stop. Uh, up to late, up to that period, any airstrikes that took place were mainly from what is officially known as a Saudi-led coalition and one assumes they were primarily Saudi planes and Emirati planes on the assumption there weren't any others. Uh, And I never attempted to figure out exactly which strikes were by whom, and I haven't seen anybody who's done that, though I think it can be done. So, you know, you had a serious uh, military intervention. And until about 2020, 
you know, the the Saudis in particular had a lot of what were what of <clears throat> strikes which were not military targets. So they were particularly blamed for attacking weddings, funerals, and other such occasions. After 2020, I think they mainly and most of their airstrikes were very specifically and properly targeted at military uh, problems or military situations, primarily in and around the Maghreb area, which was one of the major, major fronts uh, between the different groups. So if you look at the evolution of the war overall, you basically had incredibly limited changes in fronts between 2016 and 2022. In 2020, the Houthis attempted a major offensive to take Maghreb, which because of its oil supplies and it being, you know, really important for them. Uh, and they had these offensive in 2020. 20, 2021, and they were, fi and finally, you know, they didn't succeed because the Saudis Air Force or Saudi and Emirati Air Force and the, and the Yemeni elements of the coalition really, really concentrated to prevent them from making progress there. So you had basically, you know, you could say a stalemate in the war by 2022 because nothing much was changing on any of the fronts. The humanitarian situation was disintegrating and deteriorating increasingly and dramatically or systematically throughout the period. The economy was collapsing. And so basically, you know, this, this uh, truce came very much at a time when it seemed that things were at a stalemate. At the same time as the truce was the replacement of Hadi by what is known as a presidential leadership council. Now, this is something that was in, you know, entirely a UAE-Saudi operation who selected eight men to be this presidential leadership council, as I think even the members weren't asked if their views on this topic. They were just appointed. And, there were, and the Yemeni involvement in that decision was minimal, if there was any at all. And the main features of this presidential leadership council is that it's basically eight military leaders, some of whom have less military force than others, representing different factions politically, different regions of the of the country, and uh, who have you know whose main objective in life is to who basically whose rivalry between them and whose uh, differences between them are superseding and far more important than their intention or wish to get rid of the Houthis. So since they were appointed, they spent far more time in internally signed fighting and struggling because there's been there's hardly been any actual military fighting between those groups. And the important element is that some of these people are primarily supported by the Saudis and the other half are primarily supported by the United Arab Emirates. And so what that means is that it's their differences, which are connected with internal power, are also connected with the rivalry between the Saudis and the Emiratis in the Yemen conflict. And that is, you know, an, an, an important element, both in the emergence of this rivalry between the Saudis and the Emiratis, and in the potential future of what, you know, of the country in terms of finding a solution.
So in the, the, the other main element that happened from late 2022 onwards was direct negotiations between the Saudis and the Houthis. As we said earlier, I think from 2020 onwards, the Saudis' main objective in Yemen is to get out and to get out of this mess and to be able to say that, you know, we have won the war, even if you can't say we've won the war, we can say we have ended the war and we're no longer involved. Now, the Saudis have been wanting to do this now, definitely, I'd say, since 2020, possibly even earlier. And their efforts to do this, you know, have been through direct negotiations with the Houthis, which since late 2022 have been done openly. Now, in the course of 2023, there were two major events which led many to believe that the, an agreement would be reached. First, there was a major Saudi delegation that went to uh, Sana'a in um, April, and the second one of a, a Houthi delegation went to Saudi Arabia in September. And in both cases, people thought that this is it and we're now going to have an agreement. It hasn't happened. It didn't happen. There was lots and lots of talk, including by the UN Special Envoy in December, that the agreement had been reached and there would now be a roadmap, etc., and that it would uh, happen in early January. It hasn't happened. I think the one of the things that needs to be added here is what was the agreement or what would be the agreement and how it would work. And basically, you know, the, the main elements that were under debate and eventually agreed were that the Saudis would pay the salaries of civil, of government staff for at least one year, which took some debate and some time to, to be achieved. The blockade on the Hodeida ports would be ended completely. It's been largely lifted, but it still exists to some extent. And that the destinations for Sana'a Airport, which has now been reopened for a couple of years, would be expanded. At the moment, they just go to Cairo and Amman. So those were some of the main agreements. And of course, on the other side, the Houthis would stop trying to prevent exports of oil from the southern ports. Uh, one of the main sticking, point, sticking points, which I think you know, they, some people claim has been solved and others say is still there, under what name or what conditions the Saudi would be signing the agreement. The Houthis were for a long, long time insisting that the Saudis have to sign as participants, and the Saudis are saying we want to sign as mediators. Now, the implication is important because if they sign as participants, that leaves them open to accusations and court cases of war crimes for what they have done in the past, i.e. the period when they were bombing schools and, and hospitals and weddings and funerals and the like. Whereas if they sign as mediators, then this problem doesn't occur. It was said widely that the, the Houthis had conceded and that it would, they would sign as mediators. Now, there's been debate and some people say that's not true, but anyway... But the point of that is that it means that the signature and the participants or the parties who would actually sign this agreement would be on the one hand the Houthis and on the other the, the PLC or the internationally recognized government. And it's important to note that neither the, none of the PLC nor any other elements of the internationally recognized 
nor indeed the UN Special Envoy have had any involvement in the negotiations between the Houthis and the Saudis. So whatever those two have agreed is basically being imposed on everybody else, regardless of what they may or may not think about it. So lastly, on this point, what is the status of the negotiations now? Where do things stand in the prospect for a formal end to the civil war stand? Well, here you have to differentiate the end to the civil war and the agreement. The two things are very, very different. Um, the agreement, you know, the, I think the hope after October, November for both the Saudis and the Americans was that they would manage to get the Houthis to sign this deal before the situation relating to Gaza deteriorated to the point where it was impossible to do so. I think we've now reached the point where it is impossible to do so. And therefore, you know, the signature is highly unlikely to be happening. Um, you know, the kind of comments and, and suggestions that one has heard, you know, vary between, you know, dead in a coma in intensive care, you know, moribund, etc. So I don't see how now that the Americans have hit the Houthis, the Houthis would under any conditions go and sit in, in Riyadh, Mecca, Muscat or Amman or anywhere else to sign a ceremony in the presence of Saudis and Americans and others. I just don't see this happening. You know, this, this, is, this is, I'd say it's at best indefinitely postponed. I personally have doubts that it would have happened anyway, but that's another story. Uh, because I believe that the Houthis don't want a peace agreement because that would reduce their control over the population which is under their rule. And therefore, they they basically need to be at war, which also partly explains, you know, what you were saying earlier of people saying they're happy about the war with the about the U.S. getting involved because it means they now have a really a real big enemy to deal with. So, if the deal had happened, it would have been a deal which clearly helps the Saudis and to lesser extent because they're less bothered, the Emiratis, to say, we are now out of the war in Yemen. We are no longer, you know, fighting the war in Yemen. We have won, maybe. But anyway, we are out. Where the fact that they would continue supporting the factions they like, etc., underground, on the quiet, I mean, it's a standard international practice. It happens all the time. With respect to the civil war in Yemen, it would have, you know, not necessarily very positive implications because if it happened with the Houthis being very, very strong, it means that you then have the strong Houthis facing this very divided internationally recognized government, which is not just divided, but it's it's weak in a whole host of other respects. And therefore, you know, you, you would then have these intra, these Yemeni, Yemeni negotiations under UN auspices taking place in a context in which the Houthis would have been very much having the upper hand. And as we've explained, I mean, the Houthis, you know, are authoritarian and unpleasant. Unfortunately, most of the factions on the other side are at least as authoritarian and unpleasant. So, you know, in, in terms of solving the Yemeni, the internal Yemeni crisis, in favor of a regime which would be, you know, which would respond to the needs, ambitions, hopes 
of the 30 plus million Yemenis who are trying to live, you know, the prospects were not very good. I mean, I think the current UN Special Envoy is doing as much as he can. And uh, has certainly, you know, I'd say his heart is on the right side. But whether, you know, in those circumstances, anything could be achieved that would really improve living conditions for Yemenis is really under debate. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Good Die Young, The Verdict on Henry Kissinger, co-published with Jacobin Magazine and edited by Rene Rojas, Bhaskar Sankara, and Jonah Walters. If the American foreign policy establishment is a grand citadel, Henry Kissinger is the specter haunting its dusty hallways. For half a century, he was an omnipresent figure in war rooms and press briefings, shepherding the American empire through successive attempts at expansion. For generations of anti-war activists, Kissinger personified the depravity of the U.S. war machine. The Good Die Young compiles essays from scholars and journalists, including Gerald Horn, Carolyn Eisenberg, and Chip Gibbons, with an introduction from Pulitzer Prize winner Greg Grandin. This collection of essays was compiled years ago. Verso was ready and waiting for Kissinger's death to publish this searing anti-obituary. The Good Die Young, out now from Verso Books. All right, let's turn back, way back in history, about nearly two centuries, when eight, when Aden first became a British colony in 1839. Why did Aden become so important to the transoceanic British Empire, and how did the British initially seize control? Oh, well, they initially seized control the easy way. They brought their gunships and they shot off the the few the few locals who happened to be around. <laughs> was <laughs> not a difficult one. I mean, there were about, I think, 4,000 people living in Aden at that time. I mean, the importance of Aden is fairly straightforward. You know, India was their main, main, main colony and was throughout the, throughout the colonial period, really, the most important colony. And uh, Aden had a fantastic quality natural port. I mean, even prior to the creation of the Suez Canal, but once the Suez Canal was there after 1869, you know, it was an absolutely obvious um, transit point, and it was then known as the coaling station because they, the ships were operating on coal, and so they had to restock with coal, and it just became a major, a major transit point on the on the route between Britain and um, and India, you know, particularly after the Suez Canal, but to and to a lesser extent before that. What sort of city did Aden become as this keynote in the British Empire? Uh, it became a very mixed city because, I mean, as I said, it started as a small village of about 4,000 people. And basically, it expanded primarily to service the needs of the, of the British uh, port and eventually of the British um, 
military because it became a major military base on the at some point I forget exactly when and basically the its population expanded enormously again uh, mainly by by immigration I mean on the one hand a lot of Indians immigrated because until 1937 Aden was actually ruled from Bombay and not from uh, from London and so a lot of you know bureaucrats and others were brought in from India and uh, later on as it in, in developed to some extent industrially but also still for the port and for the British base uh, from the hinterland which is basically both parts which were then officially in the Aden protectorates, i.e. within British areas, into areas also which later which were then the, in the Imamate, um, as well as people from Somalia and other areas. So you had this uh, very mixed population, and most of the people from, from Somalia and from the hinterland and from the Imamate were basically unskilled workers, but a few, a few managed to get some skills and, and developed and, and get an education, but the vast majority were basically workers. So you had quite a significant working class in Aden by the late 40s, I'd say, maybe, I'm not sure exactly when, but certainly throughout the 50s, you had a strong working class element in, in Aden city itself. And it's always worth also notice that Aden was a colony the hinterland was the eastern and western protectorates. So the, rela the official relationship between the Britain, British and Aden and, the, and with the protectorates was very different. What did the political order look like elsewhere in what is today Yemen, including Sana'a in the north, where, where the Zaidi imamate that we've referred to a few times, where, where that imamate ruled? Well, in the north, I mean, until the late 19th century, and I think I can't remember officially if it was until the end of the First War, you had an Ottoman connection and you had the Ottomans being present and not ruling all of that part of the country, trying to rule a lot of that country, but not really succeeding. And at the same time, and then you had, you know, you had the imamate, which varied in size and scope and, you know, and territory controlled it in different levels over the centuries, uh, but which after after the First World War was basically based in Sana'a and the borders that were between what what was the, the Imamate and the British area were actually agreed between the, the Imam and the Brits. And again, you know, some of the reasons why there's been conflicts on some bits of the border is because it was all connected with what various micro micro-rulers who, the, who they thought they would get more money out of or how things worked. So you have a very weird border which cuts across, you know, tribal groups and other groups. So basically, but you, you know, the, and the imams in the, basically in the 20th century, also ran quite an authoritarian system and basically were active collecting taxes from the majority of the population. They also ran a very isolated uh, state with very lim limited connections with the outside world. And this is also where, in up until the foundation of the State of Israel and the Nakba, where Yemen's substantial Jewish minority lived. The Jews in Yemen were everywhere. There were a lot of them in the protectorates as well. But I've no idea what about the figures. But um, but they were a minority, and they were mainly active you know, in, in handicrafts, I mean, particularly things like silver and other other sort of manufacturing activities. 
but they existed everywhere in both uh, in both the imamate and in the protectorates, and presumably also in Aden. Yeah, indeed, there's I think there's a smaller was a small Jewish cemetery in Aden somewhere. You recently wrote a Jacobin essay about about the long history of Palestine solidarity in Yemen. You write that in quote. 1947, in the then British colony of Aden, one of the first public demonstrations against British rule took the form of a three-day strike against Britain's pro-Zionist policies in Palestine. How was it, even before the Nakba, that that anti-Zionism and Palestine solidarity served as this means for mobilizing broader anti-colonial sentiment in Yemen, in Aden in particular, but also really across across the region more generally? I think it was very simply the fact that everybody objected to the fact that the British were supporting the creation of Israel. I mean, it's very, you know, if if you remember that period uh, after the First World War and thereafter, you know, the British promised, um, you know, to help the Jordanians to, I mean, yeah, to help the Hashemites to take over and to run the region. And the Balfour Declaration, you know, was something that was regarded as a very strong, uh, you know, it was great hostility throughout the Arab world. You know, I think it was simultaneous, you know, the being, and it wasn't a matter of being anti-Zionist in so, so much as being anti the British creating a Jewish state on Arab land. If you see what I mean, if you see the, the difference, I mean, it's not that they objected so much to I mean, basically, they objected to Zion. They objected to the land being taken over by someone else. If it had been a bunch of Catholics from Ecuador, it would have been the same thing. I think it was basically the this basically st- stealing and removal of Arab lands and and you know rap- as it rapidly. I mean, there was already quite a lot of fighting going on in Palestine from the nineteen thirties onwards, and so it was a you know widespread hostility to basically to British colonial activities and expansion of colonialism. In 1963, the National Liberation Front, or NLF, was founded. It was the force, the National Liberation Movement, that would ultimately push the British out of Aden in 1967, establishing the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen in South Yemen. What was the NLF? How, and I found this fascinating, how did it grow out of the Palestinian-led and Beirut-based movement of Arab nationalists. This is the same organization that ultimately gives birth to the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, and the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, DFLP. How did the NLF come about, and what accounts for its close historical association with the left wing of the Palestinian liberation movement? Basically, the MAN created those Palestinian movements you mentioned, but other movements throughout the Middle throughout the Middle East. I mean, there was a group in Kuwait that was uh, associated with them. The the origins of the People's Front of the Liberation of Oman is also associated with them. It was really a core group, which, as I understand it, you know, from people I I knew way back who who had been kind of involved. You know, it was a, a group that was created within AUB, within the American University of Beirut, which started, you know, discussing and having these alternative views and challenging the, you know, colonialism and imperialism in general. And it was a multinational group, I think. You know, as, as I said, there were also, I think, some Saudis involved. 
So it, you know, the fact that the only major movements that emerged out of it were the PFLP and the DFLP in, in Palestine, they were the biggest. And, and indeed, it was originally started by Palestinians. But I think it, it involved, you know, small groups of nationalists from all the different countries. And eventually, you know, it did split when it split between the sort of more right wing and the more left wing sections. But so the NLF was one and, and it was part of the NLF, in fact, that it descended from the from the movement of Arab nationalists, because when the NLF was formed, it included other groups, you know, which were more local groups. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I remember there was the, the Yafari Liberation Front and a couple of others. So in that sense, it was a front which included both elements of this left wing group from the movement of Arab nationalists and other small groups of people from different parts of the British protectorates, mostly. Uh, who who formed this uh, National Liberation Front, which, you know, I don't think that if we look back to 1963, and again, I'm not sure, uh, you would find a, such a detailed uh, analysis or a, a very firm, clear ideological position that was shared by men, all the groups who were in it. And indeed, if you look at the divisions that later emerged in the NLF, before independence and after, you know, you can see that there were different tendencies. But I think it's what's really interesting to, to remember is that really it is most of the left-wing and even communist movements, as far as I know, in the Arab world, you know, had their origins with that group in the, in the 1950s. How did the NLF ultimately defeat the British Empire? And then what sort of government was the Marxist-Leninist People's Democratic Republic of Yemen that the NLF established? Well, basically, there's two things to remember here. First, you know, the Brits had decided to go, and they were going anyway. So, you know, it's arguable whether or not they were literally driven out or they were leaving anyway. But there, there was as much, uh, particularly in 66 and 67, there was as much fighting by the NLF against the Brits as there was fighting by the NLF against the rival liberation movement, the Front for the Liberation of Occupied South Yemen, which itself was much, much closer to Nasser and Nasserism, and, you know, therefore, you know, very much a rival to, to the NLF. And, I, I mean, one of the interesting things, in retrospect, maybe slightly comic, if, if one can use that word in these circumstances, is that the British, you know, had, had planned to leave, and they decided to leave, but basically Aden in particular had become extremely chaotic. And they only started negotiating with the NLF for the formalities of independence a couple of months before it actually happened. And the reason they prime one of the reasons they negotiated with the NLF is that basically they were totally opposed to the Flossi because of Flossi's close association with Nasser and Nasserism. And if you look back at that period, you know, in the in the 1960s, as far as Britain was concerned, you know, Nasser was the closest thing to the devil that you could find in the region. So basically, they would have negotiated with anybody who opposed Nasser. They certainly did it in and all most of the memoirs you read of people who were of the Brits who were involved in that period. They had no idea who the NLF were. I mean, there's endless stories of them discovering by to a complete surprise that, you know, one of the people they negotiating in Geneva was one of their staff members whom they had absolutely no idea was against them. 
So, you know, it, 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 there was a certain element of chaos basically going on in Aden in 67 and the sudden decision to, to speed it up because originally they were planning to, first they were planning to leave in 71, then they brought it back to 68 and then eventually they left in, in, in November 67. So they were really in a, in a rush to, to get out basically. Speaking of, of Nasserism, let's, let's turn to North Yemen where Republican military officers overthrew the ruling imamate, the, the Zaidi kingdom, in 1962's September Revolution, leading, leading to the establishment of the Yemen Arab, Arab Republic and also a major armed conflict that lasted until 1970. What were the politics and, ge- and geopolitics of the Zaidi imamate and what were then the politics animating the nationalist revolution that overthrew it? Well, the Zaidi imamate was basically isolationist, and it had had some reasonable relationships with the Italians when the Italians were in the region, mainly in Ethiopia. But basically, it was a, it was it kept it, it trying to keep its relationship to the outside world to the minimum. So the overthrow happened, you know, which is as you said, is known as the twenty sixth of September Revolution. Although they were isolationist in the, sorry, although the imam was very isolationist in the 50s, he had sent a number of military uh, cadres to be trained in in uh, Egypt and in uh, Iraq, I think. And so these guys came back with, you know, some more Nasserist and independence ideology. And they are the ones who overthrew his son, who had been in power for nine days, if I remember rightly. So... You know, they they had a close. They, some of them had a good relationship with the Egypt, with the with Nasser and his and his movement in Egypt, and of course it was happening in a period when Nasserism was on the ascendant throughout the Arab world, and there were threats of you know Nasserist or perceived threats threats of Nasserist revolutions in other countries in the region, and so of course immediately nasser offered to to help the to help the revolutionaries and they had you know and sent both military and civilians to, to kind of develop an administration and an, and a, in in the yemen arab republic but the the military aspect was basically because having failed to actually kill the new imam the imam escaped and went to various areas and wrote support from various tribes. And so the, a civil war emerged basically between the Republicans and the Imamites and throughout the, throughout the country. And the Egyptians came basically to support the Republican movement. But they did it, you know, both they had absolutely no idea about Yemen and what Yemen could conceivably be like. And, you know, one of the stories, which I understand is true because this was reported at the time by a a well-known British journalist. I mean, he was going, if you're traveling from Sana'a to Hodeida on the coast, you're basically starting at 2,000 meters altitude to end up obviously at zero. But in between, you have two mountain chains. So you go up the mountains, down into a valley and up the next lot of mountains and down into the valley. And, the, the you know, the proper road hadn't been built. And this guy recalls going from Sana'a to Hodeida and coming across a, a group of Egyptians who were heading in the opposite direction and got into conversation with the commander or whatever, you know, the leader of this operation. And the guy was asking him, how far is it still to Sana'a? 
And he responded and told him. And then the guy explained that, you see, we don't even have any maps. We have no idea. So, you know, the Egyptians were coming and they had no idea. And I think, you know, I mean, I had a very different but comparable experience when I was had some Egyptian volunteers who were, were coming in, in Yemen and to, to work on a rural development project I was on, and they were supposed to be staffing it. And they were just completely horrified about the fact the place had mountains, you know, that there were hills, that it wasn't completely flat, <laughs> and that, you know, that completely threw them. So if you think of the Egyptians having turned up, you know, thinking that the Yemen was going to look like, uh, like the Nile Valley, uh, you can imagine that they had problems. So, you know, the and the fight was pretty horrible. I mean, there were gases were used and other, you know, mass destruction weapons were also used. So the, the, the again, it was a case where everybody thought they would win, but in a hurry, but obviously didn't. And then the Saudis were involved. And then, of course, after the 1967 defeat in the, of the June War, so the, the Egyptians, you know, there was a conference in Khartoum, I think it was in August of that year, in which basically the Egyptians said they were withdrawing and the Saudis said, fine, if you withdraw, you know, this is fine. And and again, they thought the, the Imamites would, supporters of the Imamites would uh, win in no time at all. But, you know, the, the Republicans fought back and, and held out. And so the compromise that was finally achieved in 1970 was a compromise which again, you know, gave much more influence to the right than would have been desired. In between, the the left of the Republican movement had also been um, basically repressed and many of its leaders killed in 67, 68, 69. So you then ended up with a Republican movement, which included a lot of Imamite supporters um, in terms in, in the government and in the ruling factions. And the Republicans, you know, were not particularly left-wing Republicans. Does that help explain how Ali Abdullah Sela rose from the military ranks of the YAR to, to the presidency of North Yemen in, in 1978? Not really, because basically we're talking about 1970 to 1978, we had eight years gap. And during these eight years, you had the three and a half year rule of Ibrahim al-Hamdi, you know, who basically took over as a military coup in June 74, I hope. I mean, I think. And who was much more uh, left-wing and who was much, and who was very close and getting close to the PDRY leadership. And it was indeed the prospect or the belief that he and the then president or head of the, I mean, of the party in Aden were going to sign a unity agreement in 1977 that led to his assassination. And then he was followed by another president who lasted barely six months, seven months, whatever, before he was assassinated, supposedly by somebody who had been sent by the PDRY leadership. And it was as a result of that assassination that Ali Abdullah Saleh and his friends maneuvered for him to be chosen as president of the YAR. And is it fair to characterize that as a consolidation of of the right flank of the YAR government? Yeah, I think you can you could say that. Yeah. Turning back south, what sort of government did the People's Democratic Republic turn out to be? Yeah, the PDRY regime is, of course, blamed and. 
described as a horrible bunch of dreadful communists who were out to, you know, do all kinds of horrible things to everybody everywhere, um, which is not what they were. I mean, the, the reality of it is that what they did in terms of governance for the population is they did, you know, actually a lot more than was technically possible thanks to the financial means of the regime. Basically, you know, they took over in November 67 at a time when the main two sources of income of Aden were had disappeared. The Suez Canal was closed, therefore no more income from the port. And the British base, which had been the other main source of income, um, also closed, obviously. So, you know, they were left with a disastrous economic situation and no obvious sources of income. It's not the, you know, subsistence agriculture of most of the country that was going to keep them afloat. So what they did in those circumstances is that they did raise money, partly from international aid, a lot of it from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, but also, you know, from local resources by setting up various attempts at industry, etc. I mean, there was the famous Chinese uh, weaving factory and such like. But mainly what they provided was a regime in which people could live on their salaries. People, there was almost no unemployment. Education was massively increased. There'd been hardly any education services in the British period. Uh, health services were provided, and very a lot of it through with help from uh, from Cuba and and China, but very by the mid seventies they had their own medical school and that was operational and they produced its own doctors, and so they provided basic living standards that were actually above the the real financial means of the state. So that's really the, the very positive element of the PDRY rule. The negative elements were basically internecine fighting, uh, which meant that there were a whole host of you know divisions and, and a, a series of conflicts within the regime. I mean, there was one in, in 68, there was another one in 69, the next big one was in 78, and the real biggest one was in 1986. And in each on each of these occasions, you know, the the leadership split. Some of the top leaders were killed, or imp- and others imprisoned, and a few and a fair number also of people then went off in ex- to exile to Sana in the YAR. So you had, you know, although one some of it can be understood because they were dreadfully worried about external opposition, which was quite realistic and true because the Saudis were against them, the the YR was against them, the US were obviously against them, the Brits were against them. I mean, there was no diplomatic relation with the US at all. Uh, but basically, they do, did feel in, uh, besieged, uh, and one can rationally say they were besieged. And then, of course, there's Oman, which I didn't talk about, which is a separate issue. So, you know, they were they were besieged, and I think that probably increased and worsened the level of, of concern, or one could even say paranoia, amongst the leadership, which, you know, helps to explain, to some extent, the internecine warfare or disagreements. But on the other hand, if they managed to stay united, uh, they would probably have done a lot better. And uh, they had, the popular support was positive with respect to the services, but the level of expectations of the population were really un, you know, unreasonable because the problem is that a lot of the population were people who had gone to Saudi or the Emirates 
I mean, after the image which were created, or to Kuwait, Bahrain, and who kind of expected the same level of of same level and quality of services as existed for nationals in those countries. And I know that I, I had lots of arguments with people in the in the late seventies, when oil had not been discovered. But you know, even if oil was discovered, the the issue was that you know you what you ended up with in Yemen was a few hundred thousand barrels of oil per day for twenty to thirty million people. Whereas you know, in Saudi, you had eleven million barrels of oil per day for the same population or even fewer. So you know, the 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 actual relationship between what was realistically possible and what was rational what what was expected you know was not really rationally determined in terms of the pdry's besiegement how did the pdry and yar ultimately end up on opposite sides of the cold war basically the pdry was the only socialist country in the region and therefore it was automatically um you know related and supported by the soviet union which had no other potential allies in the region i mean okay it had a, it had a good relationship with syria but you know the the pdry socialist yemeni socialist party as it became after 1978 you know was a socialist party which claimed to be you know part of the socialist world and again in the early years you still had the end of the sino-soviet dispute so these were also relevant but basically you know you did not have a comparable regime in the region and certainly not in the peninsula so that's why the pdry was aligned with the soviet union the yar is much more complex because they tried to keep good relationships with everybody and there is the you know i think probably true story that there were times when you'd have the Americans training the air force on one end of the runway in Sana airport and the Russians training the air force the other end of the runway of the same airport so you know they tried to to basically keep a balance and and the YAR regime although it was you know very straightforwardly capitalist and and you know one could even say kleptocratic particularly after the after in the in the 80s and and maybe not so much in the 70s uh you know was was part of the western camp but you know only to a marginal extent i would say you know they were not uh, you know because of keeping relations with their all sides they were they were you know they were you could almost say neutral in between in in those issues but of course by comparison with the with the pdry they were far to the right and they were of course very very dependent on saudi financial support i mean the saudis basically kept the regime in sana afloat financially both the regimes and separately the tribes so that to keep again to have a kind of semi divide and rule relationship between the tribes and the actual regime in the capital and again you know between 73 and sorry 74 and 77 when you had hamdi in power you know things were quite tense with the with the saudis so you had a, a varying relationship the saudis had you know one they had a lot of the exiles from what had been the british protectorates you know the people who were anti-socialist and who emigrated those who were partly in saudi arabia and partly in the yar but some of them you know set up military groups and they had certain you know, occasional conflicts on the border so they were you know actively involved in in trying to undermine the the socialist regime in in aden what was the pdry's role 
in supporting revolutionary struggles across the region. Obviously, they were they were isolated in terms of governments across the region, but what was their role in supporting insurgent forces, particularly in Palestine and in neighboring Oman? Well, they were particular. I mean, in Palestine, you know, they didn't have much of a role to play. There was the Palestinian movement had its own finances, had its own facilities, you know, was available throughout, you know, Jordan and elsewhere. After the big attack, was Israeli attack in 1982 in Beirut, and the expulsion of the of the Palestinian movement, both the YR and the PDRY invited a lot of Palestinians, including militaries, to move to Yemen. So in that sense, you know, that that's really what we, they were doing with respect to Palestine. The more important element for the PDRY was the revolutionary movement in Oman, which they supported very, very firmly from the earliest days. I mean, the, the previous Front for the Liberation of Oman and the Arabian Gulf or whatever it was, it, it changed its name over time, which started in 1965, was, you know, at that time, the NLF was not in power. But they got, you know, as soon as they came to power, they were absolutely firm supporters of the of the movement. They, in terms of logistics, in terms of uh, diplomatic support, insofar as they had any diplomatic influence, but also in facilitating, you know, travel and possibilities and and supplies, etc. So the PDRY fully fully supported the the Omani movement. Indeed, till way after it was defeated. I mean, some of it, some of the members of the People's Front for Liberation of Oman, as it was called by the end of that, you know, stayed in Yemen until the civil war. And as far as I know, you know, there might still be some there, but I know some who, who went back to Oman after the civil war started, uh, you know, in the last few years. So their, their support for that movement was very considerable. They also supported other movements on, in the Horn of Africa. And of course, they had a good relationship with Mengistu's Ethiopia. Um, again, I don't feel able to go into details of that at this point. Um, you know, and, and with other movements, I mean, with the Eritrean liberation movement, when it was still a reasonable liberation movement trying to, you know, get the, get its own independence. And, you know, they were, they had, meetings and ref visits by revolutionary third world movements throughout. And they had a good, very good relationship, particularly with Cuba. But I mean, then Cuba was already a, a state, as a, not, a, not, a, not a liberation movement by the time the PDRY was created. Yemen unified in 1990 uh, amid the collapse of the Soviet Union. Why did unification happen when it did? And what did it look like when it happened? It happened when it did partly, as you say, as a consequence of the end of the Soviet Union. But it had already uh, been encouraged by the Soviets, had been encouraging the PDRY to improve its relations. And there were two wars between the PDRY and the YAR, one in 1972 and one in 1979, and both ended with agreements for unification which very few people thought was ever going to happen. And, you know, they were agree, but they did, particularly the second one led to the creation of a whole host of committees who organized a common constitution and agreements on school syllabi and all kinds of different, you know, administrative and political details. And I think, you know, the, the concept of Yemeni unity, I think is something that made and still makes a lot of sense. 
I mean, personally, I always thought that, you know, the talks of Arab unity was, you know, a joke and it was completely unlikely and that couldn't happen. But, you know, Yemenis do form a nation and they do, you know, the there's a very clear, instantly recognizable difference between a Yemeni and a Saudi or a Yemeni and an Omani, let alone a Yemeni and an Egyptian or whatever. And there is this, you know, what I'd call the basic elements of a joint culture in terms of the not the language varies within Yemen, of course, as all Arabic uh, dialects vary even within the country. But there, you know, there's there's more cultural elements that keep Yemenis together than than that separate them. And although they're not all the same, and it would be very difficult to kind of do a matrix or a map, but it could be done. And so, I mean, the, and there was a very, very strong will for unification. The popular Yemenis, you know, just as we're saying today, the Yemenis are very pro-Palestinians. If you walked around any part of Yemen in the 1980s, um, everybody wanted unification. Everybody believed that unification was the solution, that it should, you know, was the solution to many problems. And indeed, it was seen as a solution to a lot of the economic problems at the time of unification, both the YI and PDRY were in financial and economic crises. And, you know, unification could have solved uh, a lot of the problems. It's just that, you know, it wasn't planned and organized in connection with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, which led to the expulsion of, you know, almost a million Yemenis from the Gulf and the creation of an even bigger economic crisis for the unified state. So I think, you know, you have a, there's a good, and the negotiations that took place, and particularly after the 1986 inter-Nissan conflict in the PDRY, which was really by far the worst. Um, the, the PDRY leadership was, although it carried out some very important and good reforms, was in a weak position and it wanted to, you know, it, it was more in favor of unification. And of course, the way unification happened, there's a lot of debates about, you know, Ali Abdullah Saleh having basically blackmailed Albid to agree to full unification, whereas the Central Committee had only agreed to have a kind of federal type of unification and other such details. And certainly in, in 1990, you know, 89, when the agreement was made, um, Ali Abdullah was on a stronger position than the, than the PDRY leadership. But, you know, the, the idea and the concept of unification is something that, you know, you could have asked almost any Yemeni except the, the leaders of Islam the, at the time who would have said, yes, yes, we want it. So it was a very popular move on both sides of the border. What sort of parliamentary and extra parliamentary politics emerged in the in the wake of unification? Did did post unification politics have have room for for the North's General People's Congress, the South's Yemeni Socialist Party, and also other parties like the Zaidi Hizb al-Haq or you just mentioned the Sunni Islamist Islam Party. And and how in that context of this new system, how did Saleh, who'd been in charge of North Yemen since 78, how did he manage to, main, to maintain control over this unified state? Yeah, unification was greeted with great enthusiasm by all. It was greeted with even bigger enthusiasm by all those people who had an interest in politics and in 
different ideas. So the immediate response to, to unification was a multiplication of political parties. I mean, prior to that, you'd had one-party states in both parts of the Yemen. So you had the General People's Congress in the YR, you had the Yemeni Socialist Party in the PDRY. After unification, I mean, not only did officially various underground parties like the Islah and the Nasserists, etc., create their own parties officially, but you had an incredible multiplication of parties. I mean, I remember at some point in 91 or 92, you know, sitting down with somebody and trying to figure out the number of parties there were, and we stopped when we'd hit sort of 30 or 40 or something. So, I mean, basically everybody and his brother and sister were setting up a political party, if that's how they felt like it. Uh, but what ha- and, and so you had this flourishing in the, for two or three years of enthusiasm and belief in the wonders and of democracy and the openness and freedom of expression and enthusiasm for a new regime, you know, despite the underlying economic crisis. I mean, let's not forget, you know, the, not only did the 800,000 come back from Saudi and the Gulf, but the World Bank cut its funds, the USAID cut its funds, everybody cut funds. So the place was in, in desperate financial straits at that time. But you had this great political enthusiasm and the great, you know, basically openness at, at all levels, for which really lasted roughly until 93-94. And then what happened is that during that period already, Ali Abdullah Saleh, you know, started to tighten his control over everything and everybody, and primarily proceeded through organizing or ensuring assassinations of major leaders of the YSP and anyone else who disagreed with him. So you you had this undermining and people at the time we thought, you know, well, it will, you know, it, it, it is a sort of stumbling steps, things will improve, etc. And then, you know, when you had the 93 elections, you know, the result were, was already a very, very strong weakening of the Yemeni Socialist Party. So, you know, the, and that was supposed to end the, the transition period, which had given, you know, the country, you know, every minister had, was either from the north or the south and had his deputy minister from the other part. And you had the two parliaments sitting in a joint parliament. All this ended in 1993 when the elections took place. And that, and that already very much uh, weakened the, the Yemeni Socialist Party, which, you know, demographically, it, it really didn't stand a chance even under better terms. But it was still perceived, particularly through the propaganda, you know, as this horrible bunch of atheist communists. And so, you know, they didn't get as many votes as they might have hoped for or expected, you know, in, in certain parts of Yemen where they could have been, you know, done better. So you had that. In addition, you had the rapidly deteriorating relationship between Ali Abdullah Saleh and his rep and his vice president who was Ali Salem Albid from the south who had you know who basically whose strategy when he wasn't happy with what Ali Abdullah was doing was to go back to Aden and sulk i don't think that's a very effective political strategy and so you know things did get very rapidly much worse and then in 1994 you had the first civil war between the north and the south which Ali Abdullah Saleh's forces won very quickly partly because they had succeeded in isolating most of the military units from the south in various locations in the north and so they were isolated and couldn't take any action so that was the, you know in a sense the the, the end of 
the strength of the YSP. The YSP also suffered enormously then and I think up to today uh, from its political positions because it's seen by many as the Southern Party, whereas the YSP has taken a position on the whole supporting unification, which means that in the South it's not really, you know, a lot of people who are Southern separatists do not support it because, you know, that's what that's what the position is taking. To bring our conversation full circle, it's it's interesting that recently we've seen Saudis fighting Zaidi Houthis when before, during the North Yemen civil war, it was Saudis backing the reactionary Zaidi monarchy. How did the overthrow of the Zaidi monarchy in 1962, followed by the repression of Zaidis at the hands of an ostensibly secular nationalist state that ultimately ended up increasing Saudi Islamist influence in the country. How did that all lay the groundwork for the Zaidi revival, a revival that began in the late 1980s and that ultimately became both opposed to the government and to Saudi Salafi proselytization? Uh, Basically, what I can say is that it is indeed worth remembering that the Saudis, that none, that, you know, sectarianism basically does not enter into any of this. You know, the Saudis supported who they considered is good for them. In other words, they supported the monarchy, however Shia it might have been, versus the Republicans, uh, however Sunni they might have been. And I think that's one element. So, you know, today, they're anti-Houthi not because the Houthis are ladies. They're anti-Houthi because the Houthis really um, basically threaten their ideological position, partly because, of course, the Houthis believe that descendants of the Prophet have the right to rule, and the Saudis are basically tribal, so they don't, you know, they don't fit into that description. So that, that's one of the many points of disagreement you have. So I think that that's what, that's one element. Basically, you know, the Zaydis and the PD in the YAR were they were not given the privileges that they had had in the Mutawakilite kingdom. And not so much the Zaydis, sorry, not the Zaydis in principle, it's the Sada. It's not, you know, you're not because the the YAR regime was every president up to now, up, up to the 2015 in the YAR was a Zaydi. So it's not the Zaydis who were having problems with the Sana'a regime. It was the, the Sada, the descendants of the Prophet. And you can't say that they were being oppressed. The, what you can say is that they didn't have the high level of privileges that they'd had prior, you know, under the Mutawakilite kingdom. In other words, they were not, for example, more or less automatically given the best jobs which is now again the case with the Houthis. With the Houthis, they, the Sada get the best jobs regardless you know, of their capacity. And they have access to all kinds of things that other people don't have access to. For example, the new Zakat law specifically says that it's to help poor Sada, not everybody. So it's not, you know, the, the vast majority of the population and indeed the vast majority of the leadership throughout the YR uh, regime were Zaidi and and indeed the Shafi'is, some of them were complaining, particularly those from Taiz, that they were treated unfairly because they didn't get enough jobs. So you know that's one element. So the 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 Zaidi revival 
was a response to, to the rise of Salafism and also to an overall perception that the, their area, i.e. Saada and that surrounding area, was not getting the benefits from the regime that they felt they were entitled to get. Now, this perception that you're not getting what you're entitled to and other people are getting it is something that you found everywhere in Yemen. Everybody thought everyone else is doing better than they're doing. So it's not something, I, I mean, basically what was happening is that the the cronies and friends of Ali Abdullah Saleh were doing well and everybody else was not doing well. So the people in Saada thinking that they were you know, being discriminated against by comparison with those, I don't know what, in Ramah or, or someplace else, was simply, you know, not true. What was true is that, you know, if you were a friend of Ali Abdullah Saleh, regardless of where you came from, you did okay, and if you went, you didn't. The Zaidi revivalist movement was, you know, a response to two elements. On the one hand, the rise of the Salafi movement in Dar al-Hadith, run by, what's his name, al-Wadi'i, of Mukbil al-Wadi'i, and which was set up in the 80s uh, in Saada, or very near Saada. Dar al-Hadith is within a few kilometers of Saada. So that was perceived as, as a real attack on Zaydism to having the Salafi movement uh, rising in their neighborhood. And the reason it was happening in that neighborhood is because this uh, Wadi'i actually was an original Zaydi who'd gone to Saudi Arabia and converted, and he basically set up this Dar al-Hadith in his home. So, so that was one element. And the second element was, you know, the, this perception of economic discrimination against them from the Saleh regime. And so, and the over, and the, so therefore the impoverishment. And the, the, so, so those were the two main motivations for the establishment of the, the Zaidi revivalist movement. And it's also worth remembering that its leader, then Hussein al Houthi, who was killed in 2004, he was an MP in in uh, in Saleh's party, if I remember rightly, in nine, in ninety three for for one parliament. So yeah, so that I think that explains the why the the Zaidi revivalists. What accounts for for the politicization of that Zaidi revival into what became the Houthi movement under the leadership of Hussein al Houthi, who, as you mentioned, was killed in two thousand four. How? In particular, did this ongoing armed conflict between the Houthis and the state, the so-called Six Sada Wars, how did that blow up in the way it did? And how did it deepen Houthi power and radicalize Houthi politics? I don't think it radicalized Houthi politics. Houthi politics were what they were, I think. Uh, I don't think they changed enormously. Uh, it was a series of, of wars which were prompted and set up, uh, you know, and and sort of took place as a result of a number of incidents. But largely, basically, one followed the other and none of them solved it because the Houthis were hoping to, you know, to achieve more versus the Saleh regime. And uh, and Saleh basically was also using these wars uh, as an element in his internal struggle with his rivals in, in Sana'a. So that you know that's an, that's another side of things which maybe at this point is obsolete. <laughs> Despite this tremendous military pressure, an ongoing humanitarian crisis, and now direct conflict with the U.S., the Houthis have, it seemed, survived more than a decade of civil war. It does not seem, though, that they've been domesticated. What 
What is your estimation of their staying power in the years ahead? And what does that mean for Yemen's trajectory heading forward? I think, you know, it's important and you've brought up, you know, this really important point, which is the humanitarian crisis. I mean, you know, the Yemeni economy has collapsed. There is, you know, there's almost nothing left of it. People are dependent on humanitarian aid, imports, um, on, you know, bits and pieces of you know, unclear economic activities and uh, on remittances, etc. So, you know, the, the the humanitarian situation, although by no means comparable to the absolute nightmare of what's going on in Gaza now, is extremely serious. And if you look at the humanitarian, the UN's humanitarian response plan, you know, which was financed at 55% in 2022, was financed at 28%, sorry, at 38% in 2023. Now, that's not particularly a discrimination against Yemen because that actually internationally, worldwide, the humanitarian response plan in 2023 has been financed about 37% or 37.5%. So, you know, this is part of the overall demands of on the humanitarian sector increasing combined with, you know, decreasing funding. But it's still, you know, it has a very strong impact. You know, the World Food Programme has reduced its rations to, to millions of people to, you know, a fraction of what they were two or three years ago. And, you know, many of these people don't have any alternatives. So, you know, the humanitarian sec- sec- situation is something that really needs to be addressed and which is very severe and is continues regardless of whether you're living in Houthi land or in uh, international recognized government land. So that's one very important element. The element of the future of the Houthis, I think one is, what is clear is that, you know, unless some extraordinary military activity takes place that actually defeats them, and it would be difficult to imagine what it would be because I can't imagine that the U.S. land invasion would have a different result in Yemen from what it had in Afghanistan eventually. Without that, the Houthis are there to stay. They may be a highly undesirable set of people you want to live under, but they are, you know, they remain an, if not the most relevant and important political force in the country. And I think, you know, that's not a particularly cheerful way to end our conversation, but I suspect that it's, it is the way things are and are likely to be. And I haven't come across anybody in recent times who suggested that there's any likelihood of the Houthis not being around for a long time to come. Well, Helen Lackner, thank you very much. Right. We've been recording for two hours, 31 minutes and 52 (laughs) seconds. Helen Lackner is the author of many books, including Yemen in Crisis, Devastating Conflict, Fragile Hope, and Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. She is an associate at the Transnational Institute, worked in rural development, and lived in the three Yemeni states for 15 years over the past 51 years. Thanks for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, 
After noting that, if the working class forsake their duty, if they remain passive, the present tremendous war will be but the harbinger of still deadlier international feuds and lead in every nation to a renewed triumph over the working man by the lords of the sword, soil, and of capital. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Fierio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and now also Instagram at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or another such site, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What truly does that is you telling people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us and do make a monthly or annual contribution at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>